Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damian Gardy, recording from lovely Houston, Texas. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stat's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stat's outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, November 7th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. The world got some staggering news this week when China approved a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. But hope quickly turned to skepticism once experts started picking apart the evidence. Medicinal chemist Derek Lowe joins us to explain. Next, we'll preview an FDA advisory panel happening next week, where experts will weigh in on a prescription drug made from fish oil. Then we'll talk about data on blood cancer therapies released this week ahead of the American Society of Hematology meeting, and whether the world needs another CAR-T treatment. And STAT just celebrated its fourth birthday. And if you'll allow us a little self-indulgence, we're going to talk to executive editor Rick Burke about the publication's origins and where it's headed. But first, a word about STAT+. Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. P-O-D. Over the weekend, the world got some staggering and perhaps hopeful news. China's equivalent of the FDA approved a new treatment for Alzheimer's disease, one that's meant to work by changing the human microbiome. Now, it goes without saying that any novel treatment for Alzheimer's is a big deal. It's been 17 years since the last new drug won approval, and the disease affects millions of people around the world. But as the days went on and more details came to light, experts started picking at the data behind this new drug from China and spotting some red flags. Derek Lowe, a medicinal chemist who blogs about drug development for science translational medicine, was among the clearer voices on this topic, and he joins us now to talk about it. Derek, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So the drug in question is called GV971. Derek, how does it purportedly work? Well, according to the paper that was published on this, it works by, as you say, affecting the gut microbiome, and that seems to affect the immune cells entering into the brain. So this is a neuroinflammation play on Alzheimer's. And people have known for a long time that there's a big inflammation component, but the interesting thing is that no one's ever gotten an inflammation trial to work. So, Derek, let's talk about the clinical data that was used to support this approval. The claim is that GV971 improved cognition at a significantly greater rate than the placebo. Now, what stood out to you about these study results? Well, a couple of things. One is that the placebo group improved, which is interesting, but some of the folks in the field tell me that could be a training effect as the patients learn about the the battery of tests that they're being put through. But one of the weird things was that the drug started showing an effect at the earliest time point, four weeks, and that's unheard of for an Alzheimer's medication. So that's either really good news or it's an artifact. And it's hard to believe that something as slow moving as Alzheimer's would really start showing a split, a difference in improvement at four weeks. And so does that make sense? You know, considering the mechanism of action of, of GV971 that you described, is it plausible that the drug would take effect so quickly and then take effect so dramatically over the course of the trial? Yeah, that's the tricky part because no one really knows. No one has ever 
come in with something that's supposed to affect the entry of these uh, of these immune cells into the brain. So it's really hard to say. That's why, you know, a lot of us are saying, well, okay, this is kind of strange. Let's see some more data because the data they have are weird. One of the strange things is that the placebo group, which I mentioned started off improving, gets dramatically worse out between the 24 and 36 week mark. They really drop off the cliff there and I can't see why that's happening. It certainly makes the drug look better. Let's talk about the company that developed the drug, Green Valley Pharmaceuticals. It isn't terribly well known in the United States, but they've developed something of a reputation in China. What did you find out about Green Valley's past? Yeah, I had never heard of them myself. But after the story broke, I started hearing from readers and contacts in China who pointed out that there's actually quite a bit of information on them on the Chinese language internet. They have been in trouble over the years, apparently, for selling some sort of fungus-derived Chinese traditional medicine-based drug that is supposedly a wonderful thing for cancer. It's to the point that CCTV, the Chinese state television network, has done several exposés on them over the years for overpromising and telling people that they're going to be able to get out of bed after a terrible cancer diagnosis, etc. So the correspondents I had were saying Green Valley does not have a good reputation over here. Green Valley has said that it will run a multinational phase three clinical trial to replicate what it's already seen from the drug. What are your expectations from that, Derek? In a word, I'm very glad that they're running it. That's exactly what has to be done. It needs to be large. It needs to be run at several different clinical centers outside China and inside China. And it needs to be run for a longer term than what they were showing and probably at several doses. We need more data. But there have been instances in the past where some unusual drug showed up that looked like it was working in Alzheimer's. There was a Russian compound called Dimabon a few years back that had some pretty interesting early clinical data. Pfizer bought into that, and when they ran a larger, more well-controlled trial, it disappeared. And honestly, the odds are that's what's going to happen this time. I hope not, but that's the way I would bet. Derek, thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to. Prescription drug made from fish oil has a very important date with an FDA advisory panel meeting next week. Adam, explain to us what's going on. Yeah, Rebecca, that drug is called Vesepa. Currently, Vesepa is approved by the FDA to lower very high levels of triglycerides. That's a type of fat in the blood. Now, Amarin, which is the company that makes and sells Vesepa, has asked the FDA to make an important change to the drug's label. What Amarin wants is to add clinical data that shows Vesepa significantly reduces the risk of cardiovascular events. You know, this is bad stuff like heart attacks, strokes, and death by 26%. So why for Amarin is adding that claim to the label so important? Because with that expanded label, Vesepa could be prescribed to millions of Americans who have moderately high triglyceride levels and some other cardiovascular risk factor. Now, the commercial stakes here are quite large. We're talking about potentially billions of dollars in future sales if Amarin convinces the FDA to amend the Vesepa label. So this whole debate around Vesepa's label will play out at an FDA advisory panel scheduled for Thursday, November 14th. 
Adam, how strong is Ameren's argument? You know, the data they have are really quite convincing. Ameren conducted a large cardiovascular outcome study. It involved thousands of patients over many years comparing Vesepa against a placebo. And when the study was analyzed, as I mentioned above, Vesepa was found to significantly reduce the risk of death, heart attack, and strokes relative to that placebo. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine one year ago, and it's been presented at major heart research meetings. And in the years since these findings were published, sales of Vesepa have actually doubled. The drug is on a run right now to do about $500 million in sales per year. But the whole reason we're talking about this and the reason there's a debate is that, you know, not everybody thinks that those results are a slam dunk, right? So, I mean, that's why this panel is such a big deal. Yeah, that's true. And so you need to understand some history here. You know, there have been many large heart outcome studies of fish oil and drugs derived from fish oil conducted over the years. And essentially, none have ever yielded positive results. There's been a general consensus in the medical community that fish oil, while being able to lower triglycerides, can't really protect people against heart attacks and strokes. So, And then this Fatipa study happens, and the skepticism was upended. Now, I'm going to be really surprised, shocked, really, if information comes out at that November 14th FDA panel, which completely invalidates the positive results that were seen in the Vasipa study. But I think there will be considerable debate and discussion about details within the study, the way it was conducted, the effect of Vasipa on various kind of subgroups of patients, which may narrow or broaden the drug's label, and that potentially could impact the commercial side. So fish oil pills are everywhere. Before the recent mania around CBD, everyone was supposed to swallow fish oil. You can buy it at every drugstore without a prescription. So what makes Vasipa different? Why does someone need to go to a doctor and get a prescription for Vasipa to gain these heart protective benefits? Rebecca, I think the easiest way to explain this is to say that not all fish oils are the same. Vasipa is different and it's actually fairly difficult to source and make. First, the active ingredient is a single type of omega-3 fatty acid called EPA. Most fish oil formulations, including the ones you can buy at your local uh, drugstore, are made from two omega-3s, EPA and DHA. And that latter, the DHA, can actually raise levels of bad cholesterol. And secondly, you have to take a lot of Vesepa to get the benefits. We're talking about like four grams of Vesepa per day. That's four large capsules. But it's important to note that there's competition. AstraZeneca has its own prescription-grade drug from fish oil called Epinova. And like Amarin, AstraZeneca is running a large cardiovascular outcome study in hopes of similarly showing a long-term protective benefit. Yeah, that's right. That Epinova study is nearing completion, and we should see results next year. Now, Epinova is a little bit different in that it also contains EPA and DHA. It's being given at that same high dosage that Amarin used with Vesepa. So the readout of this trial will be really interesting. If it works, it will confirm and validate this hypothesis that high levels of purified fish oil can protect the heart. And if it doesn't, there could be more questions raised. So Celgene, thanks to its $9 billion acquisition of Juno Therapeutics, is angling to be the third company with a CAR-T treatment for lymphoma. But data released this week ahead of the American Society of Hematology meeting being held in December called that future into question. Yeah, you know, it's kind of amazing. Two years ago, we were heralding the approval of the first CAR-T therapy to treat blood cancer. And here we are today asking a legitimate question. Do we really need another one? So the Celgene CAR-T therapy is called Lysocell, or JCAR-17, and it aims to treat a common but aggressive form of lymphoma called DLBCL. 
Results from a large clinical trial were disclosed this week, and they show that Lysocell delivers response rates in patients that are comparable to CAR-T treatments already marketed by Novartis and Gilead Sciences. The same trial results also suggest that Lysocell might be a bit less toxic. But there are some notable wrinkles here. So first, will Celgene convince the FDA to approve its Lysocell CAR-T? You know, the FDA was very eager to approve the original CAR-Ts from Novartis and Gilead because patients at that time desperately needed new treatment options. You know, that's not really the case now, which raises the possibility that the FDA may take a more conservative stance with this third CAR-T, perhaps holding off until Celgene can collect more data. And second, you know, the original CAR-Ts that you're talking about, sold by Novartis and Gilead Sciences, have been basically commercial disappointments so far. They haven't really lived up to what people expected in terms of sales, at least so far. And so even if Celgene does convince the FDA to give it the approval to treat the same type of lymphoma patients, its sales might be minimal given that, you know, doctors already have options that they're not using as much as people thought. And then, you know, not to get too deep into the weeds, but CAR-T is not like a pill that comes out of a factory. It's a very complicated process in which hospitals have to choose which one they're going to do. So there's an added difficulty for Celgene if, in fact, it wins approval that it has to kind of break into that market by forging those relationships, many of which already exist. So there's also an M&A angle here, right? How does Celgene's merger with Bristol-Myers Squibb fit into this? You may recall that Celgene is in the midst of a $74 billion merger slash acquisition by Bristol-Myers Squibb. So as part of the deal, Celgene shareholders received what's called a contingent value, right? And it's basically sort of a lottery ticket that will pay off $9 per share if three requirements take place by the end of next year. And one of those requirements is the approval by the end of 2020 of Lysocell. So in a lot of ways, you know, doctors may not be really super interested in Lysocell as like the third CAR-T, but for sure, Celgene shareholders definitely want this thing approved. So we try not to do too much navel gazing on this podcast, but this week is Stat's fourth birthday, and so we thought the occasion called for a conversation about the news organization that employs us and how it's grown and changed since its launch way back in November 2015. So joining us to talk about all that is Rick Burke, Stat's co-founder and executive editor. Rick is also the executive producer of this podcast. Welcome to The Read Out Loud, Rick. Thank you, Adam. And I just want to congratulate the three of you on your editor and publisher, best small podcast in the entire country. So as some listeners might already know, Stat was dreamed up by John Henry, the billionaire owner of the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Globe. Rick, can you tell us how you came into the fold? So I got this call out of the blue that John Henry wanted to start a life sciences publication that had a national, international audience. My response was, I don't know life sciences. I don't want to move to Boston. I've never done a startup before. But the more I talk to people in Kendall Square and in Boston and in the life sciences world, I thought there's millions of stories that aren't being written, provocative, interesting stories about this world. So I was game to really jump in and do this and hire the best reporters in the country and beyond to write these stories, including the three of you. So Stat was not always called Stat. Rick, what other names did you consider for the news organization before arriving at our current name? 
Oh my gosh, Rebecca, you were there from the very beginning, and you probably remember some of the names we had talked about early on. Before I even signed on to STAT, maybe you don't know this, our owner had this idea in his head that we should call it Bionomy, B-I-O-N-O-M-Y, which I thought actually was not a good name. <laughs> and But I hadn't signed on yet, so I pulled him aside and I said, you know, I'm really intrigued about taking this job. And Bionomy is a good name, but, you know, let's give it some time. Let's think about some other possibilities. And he said, fine. And then later on, we came up with Stat. That was some good advice you gave John there. Can you imagine, Adam, I work for Bionomy. You probably wouldn't have wanted to join. <laughs> I think you're probably right. So, so Rick, let's talk about the financials. You know, just a few months after Stat launched and while readers were still discovering the site, you made the decision to launch our paid subscription site, Stat Plus. Now, why do you think it was important to take that risk and essentially bet that readers would be willing to pay for our journalism? Well, before I signed on to do this, I asked John Henry... What if people don't want to read stat? What if we can't make money? What if it's not going to work? And he came back at me and said, people will pay for great journalism. And if they don't, God help us all. This was a bet to see if we did high-end, ambitious journalism, would there be readers willing to pay for it? And we tried it on a very experimental basis with our famed Farm-a-lot writer Ed Silverman, he has a very loyal audience. And we thought, well, people pay for Ed. People paid for Ed in droves. And then we added to the team and added and added and added. And now we're at the point where, you know, about half our stories are behind the paywall and people are willing to pay for quality journalism. So John Henry's theory really has paid off. So stats coverage has evolved quite a bit over the years. There's things we used to cover really closely that we don't cover so much anymore and things that we have come to really focus on. How have you made decisions about what stats should really pay attention to? At the very beginning, we tried everything. We had a reporter that wanted to go to Burkina Faso to, to write about CRISPR. We sent a reporter to Tahiti to write about Zika. We did a lot of experimentation, but all terrific journalism. But after about a year, year and a half, we looked to see what was really working, what was sticking. We ended up looking at what stories our core audience wanted to read and pay for. And that was biotech, pharma, life sciences, the business of health, the politics, the policy. So that's what we zeroed in on. So Rick, what's next for STAT in year five? We're going more aggressively into health and technology and the intersection. Next year, we're going to be focusing even more on AI and health, the good and the bad. We're also looking into China more and focusing more on what's happening with biotech in China. And we're also going to be looking more closely at pharma and the election year and what the candidates are saying and doing and pharma's influence in the campaigns. So we have a lot of projects underway. Rick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks to the three of you for doing this every week. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you want to see from STAT in year five. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. See you next week.